Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What causes heart disease? How important is cholesterol? If you have a heart attack, can you ever fully recover? Well, we're going to answer these questions and more. Today, I'm delighted to have in the studio Dr. Sunny Wong. He is a cardiology expert with almost 30 years of practice here in the islands, and he now is running Hawaii Heart and Vein, a cardiology practice that also provides venous services as well. So thank you for joining me live in the studio. I'm happy to be doing live shows again, Dr. Wong. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's talk about heart disease. You know, it's always listed as one of the number one or two causes of death in the United States. And, you know, we start worrying about people having risk factors for cardiovascular disease pretty young now, checking cholesterol, et cetera. But if you were to encapsulate what causes it, what do you think is actually really giving us this potentially fatal situation? Well, you know, we talk about uh, cardiac risk factors or coronary risk factors and uh, they have a, a lot to pay, to play. But the issue here is you can't avoid your mother and your father. I think genetics has has, has a role to play. But in terms of looking at uh, so-called uh, risk factors for a heart attack, you're looking at high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, uh, lack of exercise, uh, and high cholesterol and high blood pressure. I think those are the main things. So you mentioned you can't really ignore your parents. Knowing your family history could really be helpful. Yeah, it's very important. You know, I see patients who, you know, their father had a heart attack at 45. Okay, well, don't come and see me at 55 when your dad's had a heart attack at 45, right? Because the name of the game here is prevention, okay? Unfortunately, people drop dead, okay? And that's not a good presentation for your heart attack. No one's going to save your life, right? Very difficult. We've heard about that. And, you know, lots of people know someone who suddenly had a heart attack, and that was that was it, unless you happen to be lucky enough to have the ability to get to an emergency room and have a mild attack. That, that really could be fatal. So some of the risk factors are things that we often have checked. What's the time in which somebody should start looking at their cholesterol? I know that the CDC recommends everybody do a cholesterol panel sometime before the age of 25 or so. Is that about the time when we should start at least knowing what our baseline levels are? Yeah, I think it's very important to know probably younger than, than older, obviously, because this disease process, as you know, starts as you know probably in teenage years or even earlier. I think you're probably aware that in the Korean War they were autopsying young uh, soldiers and they had the evidence of the hardening of the arteries already as an 18 or 19 year old. So yeah, so to know earlier is better and hopefully you can be more proactive. And I know, unfortunately, when you're a teenager, you're indestructible too. So, you know. That's true. I th I don't know if I ever really felt that indestructible uh, type of idea, but let's talk a little bit, do a little deeper dive into cholesterol. There's different types of cholesterol, and people often think, well, I have a lot of good cholesterol, or my bad cholesterol is only a little bit elevated. What are the different types of cholesterol, and why do they matter? Yeah, when we do a blood test, we measure various cholesterol fragments or blood fats or whatever you want to call them, and the basic cholesterol panel you get a reading called the total cholesterol. Okay, so that's a number that you should be somewhere. 
And depending on who you talk to, maybe 150 is a good reading, 200 may be a good reading, but it depends on your circumstances. Then we measure the triglycerides, and then there's the breakdown of the total cholesterol to LDL cholesterol. It stands for low-dense uh, lipoprotein cholesterol, and that's the bad stuff. Okay, So the way to remember this is the LDL cholesterol should be low because you've got L. And then there's high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is, quote, the good cholesterol. So H for higher, the higher this off, the you're better off. Maybe there's less chance of having a heart attack if you have a lot of good cholesterol. So that's the basis of the thing, and probably... A, as you mentioned, you should know your numbers earlier in life than later in life, particularly if there's an early history of heart attacks and a parent in their 40s. Do the numbers change over time? Do you see folks who, when they're younger, have really good HDLs, those high, happy HDLs, and have nice and low LDLs, and then as, as they get older into their 50s or 60s, we start to see that change? Or does it stay pretty stable throughout a lifetime? I think it depends on the particular individual. You know, if you exercise and keep a steady weight and your diet doesn't change much, I think they're pretty stable. But obviously, as you get older, you get a little bit more affluent, so, you know, you eat a little, I don't know, smarter or worse or whatever. <laughs> you can afford the steak, so now you want it when you go out yeah, to dinner. that's right. Okay. And so over time, it might go up, so therefore that's why we start to take a look and say, hey, we might want to consider doing something. Is the first thing that people should do really work on not eating the cholesterol as opposed to jumping on medication? Yeah, that would be my first thought. You know, the typical American diet is a high-fat, high-cholesterol diet. You know, I don't know whether you want to call it steak and potatoes now. But uh, obviously uh, there should be uh, less emphasis on uh, fatty foods, red meat, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've heard the story and eat more whole foods and grains and things like that. Some people feel, you know, Mediterranean diet is more helpful. Kind of following that idea of eating more vegetables, eating more greens, having less animal products, which tend to have cholesterol in it. So, you know, why eat someone else's cholesterol if you already have high numbers? Just stick to something else that's maybe a little healthier for you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, beyond the cholesterol itself... There's other risk factors you mentioned, and I think that combination of cholesterol in addition to high blood pressure, which is another issue that can magnify the effect of cholesterol in the arteries, if they're getting blockages and they're also getting hardened by blood pressure, that's sort of a, a bad combination, huh? Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, blood pressure is like the silent disease. You really don't have symptoms unless you have some catastrophic event, stroke, heart attack, uh, or kidney failure or something. So you could be running around. So let's put a figure on where your blood pressure should be. My feeling is 130 over 80 or lower is a good blood pressure. But you don't know if you have 160 over 100. So it should be checked. Now, there's a lot of automatic cuffs these days. People could go to the pharmacy. They could go to Costco. They could go to a variety of places and purchase some of these devices. They used to be available in the community. Maybe before COVID, people could check their blood pressure you know, at a grocery store or something. I don't see those around as much, but I do see a lot of places selling automatic blood pressure cuffs. Do you find those to be generally pretty accurate? Yeah, I do. And I encourage a lot of my patients to get one of those cuffs where they want to go to Costco or Long's or whatever, so they can actually monitor their blood pressure. And it helps me in managing the 
the medications, if they need medications to control their blood pressure, it gives me a lot of feedback because people are anxious when they come to the doctor's office and the blood pressure can be falsely elevated. So when's the best time to check it? I usually tell folks, check it all over the place. I want to see numbers in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. I want to get a good idea of what your range is. But is there one particular time of day that gives you the most accurate numbers that you might make decisions on medicine for? No, uh, I don't go by one reading. I'm, I'm in your camp, so we're on the same page. I like to see a series of blood pressures over a period of time and multiple times during the day. Uh, you can have one falsely elevated blood pressure, say you're in the, let's say someone comes and sees me. They don't want to see a cardiologist. They're anxious. Their pressure's 160 over 100. Uh, and yeah, it may be because they don't like me, but uh, <laughs> don't like being in the office, right? So in that particular situation, I'll say, maybe you should get a blood pressure cuff and let's get some readings at home and see what they are before we commit you to anything. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Sunny Wong about what are some of the other risk factors for cardiovascular disease and what sorts of things could you do right now to help lower your risk as time goes on. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I have Dr. Sunny Wong in the studio, and we're talking today about heart disease and how you can avoid it. Now, before the break, we talked about how important it was to know your cholesterol numbers and what those different types of cholesterol numbers ought to be and why that might just make a difference for you. And we were just talking about blood pressure and how that's another risk factor that could potentially be something that you could modify on your own. Now, we've talked a little bit about how to check your blood pressure. You could get one of those machines, you could take a lot of readings, and you could go ahead and share that with your provider. When you talk about folks who have numbers that are a little bit higher than desired, you mentioned the 130 over 80 or so. What's one of the first things that we recommend people do? Do you think that salt avoidance actually has a big impact on people's pressure? In particular people it does, okay? So the, the, the advice is to limit the salt intake, but it may not make a difference. I think probably maybe, I know, 10, 20% of people see some drop in their blood pressure uh, with uh, salt restriction, but some other patients don't. When the time comes to start thinking about treating the blood pressure, what's your go-to? In terms of medication? In terms of medication. If somebody's tried to lower their salt, they're doing a good job with their exercise, they still got these high numbers. Uh, it's it's a little variable. It depends on the underlying situation. Let's say someone might be diabetic and you may want to choose a medication called an ACE inhibitor because it may protect their kidneys uh, or what we call a um, angiotensin receptor blocker, which also protects the kidneys. Maybe a younger person, you may want to go to a beta blocker because you feel maybe their cardiac output is a little higher. So it depends on the individual circumstances. Not one drug fits all. And it may take two or three drugs if the blood pressure is particularly high. One of the things I try and tell patients is the best blood pressure medication for them is the one that works, that they take every day. Yeah, without the side effects too. Without the side effects. So you mentioned that sometimes you need two or three. 
Do you find that for a lot of folks, taking lower doses of combination medications works better than pushing the dose high of just one? I mean, I guess there's a variety of different ways to do it. Uh, But I'm just curious with side effects and with other things, which do you find works best for you? Uh, For me personally, I like to push one medication higher before adding another. But there is a segment of the physician community who likes to use low dose and a couple because maybe the side effect profile is not as bad. Um, I tend to sort of push one medication before adding another medication, but it's, it's, a, it's a call by the physician on how they feel. And the goal is less than 130 over 80. Yep. As long as you can get there. You can. Now, you mentioned diabetes as another potential reason why certain medications might be chosen. That also increases your risk factor of heart disease as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you're a diabetic, you have the risk of having a heart attack equivalent to someone that's already had a heart attack. Okay, so you're automatically in the group that you should get your cholesterol treated, get your blood pressure treated, make sure your hemoglobin A1C is under control, and do everything you can to avoid having that first heart attack because your risk is already as if you've already had one. And that changes a little bit of the recommendations. So I know, you know, we've been talking about what we call primary prevention. So before you have a heart attack, what should you do? Know your blood pressure, know your cholesterol, know your sugar. Hopefully you're not diabetic. But you mentioned that if you are, then you kind of get put in this almost like a secondary prevention category. There are some studies that have suggested people with diabetes should be on statins even if their cholesterol is good because they make it a benefit and reduce their potential future risk of having a heart attack. Is it because they have that same risk as someone who's already had a heart attack? Yeah, absolutely. And then the other issue is there's evidence coming out with LDL cholesterol, lower is better. So we might have thought, you know, five years ago, your LDL needs to be less than 100. And now the current recommendations that came out this summer is uh, 55 or lower if you've had a heart attack or you're in the prevention game. That's often a little difficult to achieve with low doses of some of the medications we have out there, that category called statins. Do you see that people are able to to get to that level by just taking either more intense or higher dose statins? Is it is it possible for most people to get below 55? It's a challenge. Um, I would say probably 50% of my patients on high-dose statins probably get there, but a lot of them need other combination medications. And what are some of those other combinations? Well, there are other pills or potions, whatever you're going to call them. There's like a medicine called Zetia, which decreases the absorption of cholesterol. There are these resin-binding uh, medications that you drink, uh, like a Metamucil. And then there are other uh, medications that decrease the uh, production of uh, cholesterol in the liver. And now there's these two new types of injectable medications. One's called PCSK9 inhibitors. And there's another medicine recently on the market that's a messenger RNA false sensing that decreases that enzyme production by the liver. Now, those are the sorts of medications that I find. If I have somebody that I've done everything with and I hit a wall, I often send them to someone like yourself that, you know, if I really can't get the cholesterol down and they're at high risk, I usually send them to see a cardiologist. Pretty amazing. I've seen folks come back with 
LDL cholesterol numbers that are in single digits. The first time I saw it, I was actually a little worried. And it turns out, no, no, that might be good for you. So is there ever a level where there's a, is, is there such a thing as too low for your cholesterol? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I think probably, yeah, lower is better. How low is better, I don't know. I think it's a moving target. I think when you're born, you have an LDL cholesterol below 20. So is that the mark? As you said, with these new medications, I've seen LDLs in the single digits. To get a little concerned, maybe I don't know. Uh, There's no definite evidence. But certainly many, many years ago, we were concerned about suicide and other things and other causes of death resulting from too low cholesterol. It never panned out, though. Well, and certainly if you're if you have a lot of blockages and you need to reduce the cholesterol, then this is some of these new injectable medicines are the way to go. If you've taken your high dose statins and you've tried those other resin binders and the other medicines like Zetia to decrease absorption, sometimes you know that's all you can do. In those sorts of situations, do we ever see blockages reverse? I know there were some studies done a few years ago that were looking at using intravascular ultrasound to see if you could actually reverse blockages or maybe stabilize blockages in arteries so they're less likely to rupture. Have you seen that? Yeah. So there's two issues here. One is regression where the plaque shrinks and the artery opens up. That does happen. Okay. And I think Dr. Dean Ornish many, many years ago did these ultra-low-fat diets and he proved that the circulation got better. Uh, Certainly... You know, we talk about the what's called the vulnerable plaque that has the high cholesterol content. So you can, quote, stabilize those plaques and make them more dense and less cholesterol content so then they don't rupture. So you've got to go back one step. What causes the heart attack? A heart attack is caused by rupture of a plaque. So the plaque does not have to be a 90% blockage to cause your heart attack. It could be a a cholesterol-rich plaque that's only 50% occlusive, but when that thing ruptures, it's like having a little cut inside your body. And what does the body do? forms a blood clot, and that chokes off the circulation, leading to the heart attack. So you don't have to have a big blockage no. to actually have it lead to a heart attack. I've heard statistics, and this this could be from too many years ago, about half half of the heart attacks that we see people have occur in blockage vein blockage arteries that are less than 50% blocked. Yeah, like that, it was this 50-50 kind of thing. Yeah, that may be so. Yeah, that's why there's no warning, right? Because you you're not going to get chest pain unless there's a reduction in the circulation. And that's where sudden cardiac death comes about. You know, we talked earlier this, in this uh, show about, you know, dropping dead is not a good thing because you can't prevent it. And there's no warning symptoms if you've got a plaque yeah. that ruptures. What causes that plaque to rupture? Have we figured that out yet? Uh, it's probably related to inflammation and cholesterol content. There may be some, uh, obviously, wall stresses and things like that. But I think it's mainly the weak uh, plaque wall and inflammation. All right. Learning a lot today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Sunny Wong from Hawaii Heart and Vein about what can we do to avoid having cardiovascular disease and is it ever too late to do something about it? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Ulupono Initiative.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I have Dr. Sonny Wong in the studio from Hawaii Heart and Vein. He's got oh, almost 30 years of practice in the field of cardiology here in the islands. And we're talking today about cardiovascular disease, heart disease. It's one of those top two causes of death in the United States, depending on which statistics and which year it is. And lots of people, lots of people you know, may have had a history of heart problems. Now, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about what causes heart attacks and this rupture of a plaque or potentially this narrowing of an artery. So you mentioned that, you know, for sudden cardiac death, for somebody who has a very small percentage plaque that is blocking their arteries, they may have a sudden event. Mm -hmm. For someone who has like an 80-90% blockage, those are people who might get chest pain with activity. And so is that one of the classic worry signs when you have somebody come to see you or someone who's referred to you? What type of pain do you worry about that makes you highly suspect that there could be an issue going on with the heart? Yeah, you're right. So the chest pain we refer to as angina, okay? So in this situation, you have a restriction in the circulation and because when you exercise, your heart needs more blood. Okay, so when you go walk up a flight of stairs, there's more demand. So therefore, if you have a blockage that's high grade, 90%, there's not enough blood getting to your heart, so you get chest pain. And obviously, once you stop the activity, it goes away. So those are the classic sort of description of anginal chest pain. It's chest pain that's heavy in the center of your chest, occurs with exercise, and relieved by rest. That's simple. That's easier to diagnose. Okay. I have 18 steps up to my office, so when the patient comes up and sees me, did you have chest pain walking up the steps? There we go. We have the diagnosis already. What's the next step after that? Well, okay, so then you have the, what we call atypical symptoms where they don't have that classic description. So then you, gotta, you, may, you might want to factor in their age and their what risk factors that we've talked about. But usually we either do a treadmill stress test and sometimes now I'm doing a coronary calcium score that actually picks up disease very early. And if somebody has a high level of the, either the calcium score or they fail the stress test, then that's when you start looking at doing angiograms and doing further investigation to see what's going on? Yeah. So that'll give you the definitive answer where they have the disease that you think they have, and then that'll lead to a game plan for treatment. Now, for some folks... They get stents. For other folks, they have surgery, open-heart surgery, or what we call bypass. How do you know which group goes in which category? Well, they have extensive disease. There are three main coronary arteries, and there's the, what we call the left main coronary artery. Uh, typically, in the old days, if you had severe, like four vessels blocked, then you would go to bypass. There are now some aggressive interventional cardiologists who will take you on. Uh, but usually the more blockages and the more blood vessels involved then the complexity of the blockages leads to bypass. Whereas maybe you have a single 90% blockage in a coronary artery, well, obviously that would be uh, uh, angioplasty stent now. And doing stents versus doing aggressive medical management. seems to be that sometimes we hear one is better than the other. Where, what's the literature say these days? It says that aggressive medical therapies is still the way to go. But if you have exertional angina and you're limited and you have a single high-grade lesion, obviously symptom relief with uh, PCI is also warranted. But then you've got to look after your cholesterol and all the other things we talked about. 
because the aim of the game is to prevent you from developing disease in other blood vessels. So no matter what, aggressive medical management. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether you do bypass, whether you do a stent, whether you just fail your stress test but have mild disease, you can't get away from it. If we find that you have risk factors and it looks like you have the diagnosis of heart disease, you you got to take care of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lifelong issue, right? It's not go and get your bypass, you're done. You can go smoke and drink and eat. <laughs> nope, it is not a free pass to right. do all those other activities, unfortunately. Now, what are the chances if somebody's had either bypass or they had a stent so that we know that they have blockages, we know that they're in aggressive medical management, is there still a progression where no matter what they do, they're going to have another event? Or can you really see that folks are able to to prevent that second or third or fourth heart attack by being that much more aggressive with their medical management and with their exercise and their diet? How successful do you think those activities are? I, I think are? it's very successful. You know, I've been in practice, I don't know how long now, 30-odd years, and I have some patients who have been very meticulous in looking after themselves and they're doing fine 30 years after a bypass. Uh, obviously, there are patients who don't look after themselves and they have a recurrent event in a few years. So it really depends on patient effort. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, where they believe they're cardiologists, right? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> true. Do you ever think, is it ever too late? I mean, if you have somebody who said, all right, I haven't been doing so good, but I really want to turn over a new leaf. It's 2023. I want to work on my cholesterol. I want to get these numbers down. At any point, someone could put some more effort into it and potentially see a benefit. Absolutely, yeah. There's no time that you cannot change. It might actually help you and prevent having another heart attack, which, you know, I've also heard a variety of folks, and in fact, the neurology community will often say, What's good for the heart is good for the brain. So if you've got blockages in the arteries to your heart, you may have blockages in the arteries to your brain. All of the therapies you're doing, lowering your blood pressure, working on your cholesterol, all of these things are going to help you in a variety of different areas. It's not just going to be something that just helps the heart. You're helping the whole body. Yeah. We're talking about atherosclerosis, which actually is a blood vessel disease, and it just happens to affect the arteries in the heart. But yeah, it can affect the arteries in your neck, it can affect the arteries in your brain, it can affect the arteries in your legs too. It's all the same process. And so if you have leg pain due to poor circulation, those things help too. So never really a time, you know, in my mind. Well, if if you have blockages in the arteries to your heart, by definition, should we be looking to see if you have blockages elsewhere or just get aggressive and treat treat the ones in the heart because that might be where you're symptomatic? That's a very good question. I do do carotid screens, and I screen for abdominal aortic aneurysms, and we check the leg arteries, and most people that have risk factors, the ones we talked about, and say age over 50 or 55. Uh, I don't know what the current society recommendations are, but that's what we do in my practice. So look at the arteries in the other areas, carotids, those arteries to your neck, the abdomen, that, that particular aorta, that's that big blood vessel that goes to the rest of your body. Checking your legs because sometimes people will have damage to the arteries of their legs as well and or blockages that could potentially be beneficial from the treatment, aggressive medical management. So it sounds like, you know, the first thing folks might want to do is get their numbers, check their cholesterol, check their sugar, check their blood pressure, talk with their doctor, see where they're at. Yeah, know their family history, obviously. Yeah, those are the genetics. You can't yeah. you can't get away from that, huh? 
And also share your genetics with your family. Mm -hmm. If you have a problem, let your cousins, let your sister, brother, nieces, nephew, children know about it because that puts you at risk and that may put them at risk too. Yeah. So it's like case finding. All right. Well, I definitely want to thank you, Dr. Sunny Wong, for sharing with us your expertise in the world of cardiovascular disease. You've gotten me inspired to make sure I've checked my cholesterol recently and check on the blood pressure, keep an eye on the sugar. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. As Dr. Sunny Wong from Hawaii Heart and Vein said, know your blood pressure, know your cholesterol, know your numbers, because that's going to be helpful so that you can prevent having a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. And prevention is really the key. It is never too late. All right. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.